0: Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palette Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities,
1: and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Um, you know, I mean, they would, if they brought me something from their cellars, I was usually pretty honored because as good as our collection was, these guys had a lot of super rare stuff. Um, But I don't know what they're doing now. (laughs) Um, Hopefully they'll
0: they'll come back and maybe it'll be a little slower paced and you know more distant physically but it's not going to come to a full stop
1: hopefully. Oh no, no, I don't think it'll come to a full stop. I I just think it's going to be, it's just, you know, we, everyone has, you know, we we're watching all of this. Drizzly and all this stuff delivered to the house and cocktail kits and um, What is it uh, one of the whiskey shows uh, whiskeys of the world today? I got a flyer uh, an, uh, um, an email from them offering to sell me 15 samples uh, 15 one ounce samples or half ounce samples of some whiskeys for $45 that I would pick up at some bar here in San Francisco and then it would give me, they'd give me a um, a Zoom ID, and then I would attend some curated tasting remotely. So we're seeing everyone trying to come up with, you know, well, what can we do in this environment? But I still think that it's, it doesn't, it's, you know, it's not as much fun as going out and bumping into people. Um, oh, yes. no it's I, that. I just don't think that's going to get, I mean, it's going to, be some time reconstituting itself, but I don't think it's going to shift away from that.
0: No, um, I think we're social animals for sure. Um, yeah. In, in terms of just the pure ageability of a whiskey, right? Wine mm-hmm. has some kind of finality, even wines that I've built to last a long time, which
1: mm-hmm.
0: but first growth Bordeaux's. I mean, theoretically, when you read the reviews, you can mm-hmm. put it away for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Why you'd want to, but <laughs> okay, you can. Um, whiskey is, you know, part of its unique set of characteristics is it can be aged for a really long time and literally is a generational historical product, which makes it endlessly fascinating and so incredibly rare in that sense. You know, some of the examples I'm sure that you've tried and have written about is, you know, very few people in the world would have been get to taste. Is there like parameters for some of the most special examples that you've run across when there's no point in aging it further that it hits some sort of a plateau like critical mass
1: okay so so up until mm-hmm. relatively recently common wisdom was is that um, r- distilled spirits didn't change in the bottle mm-hmm. or or what they did was is they went off in the bottle
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that now has really been, I won't say debunked, but I think it's been contextualized much more in a much more sophisticated manner. So we know that that spirits interact with light somewhat, but with air a lot. And we are fortunate enough that because there was such a long period of disinterest in distilled spirits and whiskeys in particular, there, are a, there were a lot of really interesting old bottles to be had. Um, I'm not sure if you, you're familiar with the, the, the uh, term of, of art, which is dusty hunting.
0: No, I haven't heard that.
1: <laughs> okay. So, so as, as people started becoming more and more interested in, in whiskey again, people started traveling around the, their neighborhoods and then further and further afield to little podunk towns that maybe had a a small package store, that there were some shelves in the back on the bottom where some bottles of some whiskey that had been made in the 40s or 50s had been sitting ever since with the original Uh, price on them and that you could buy these things out. And in some cases, you know, they were out of production, old bottles of whiskey that had made in distilleries that no longer exist and um, so people started going dusty hunting. And so it became a big thing. And, and sure, there are probably still more little nooks and crannies, but I think for the most part, everything's been eked out, etched out at this point. But we know from going back and drinking dusties that a lot of these whiskies have a fair amount of stamina, but they, they change a lot. Um, in, in my experience, the aromas tend to hang in there but they flatten out on the pallets and they, and and like old wines, which I'm sure you've had this experience of, you know, you you pour it out of the bottle and that initial first sniff and the first few sips are good. And then it just destroys itself. It falls apart on, on exposure to so much air. And I I've had that experience with a a pre prohibition. Whiskies do that all the time. Um, You know, the fills are good. So that means that there's not been a lot of loss of evap- evaporative loss in the bottle, and you pour it and everyone's ooing and awing over it it's some whiskey that's 90 years old and or um, was made ninety years ago and then um, and then it's gone you know um, it just it just evaporates so uh, and then we all have the experience everyone who collects that our bottles change after we open them um, you know, um, one night at the bar, we had, I'm, I'm worried I'm drifting off and telling stories rather than answering your question here. <laughs> the oh, answer is, okay, because, you know, I'm lucky enough that because some of these whiskey geeks come in and, and let me do stuff and they'll pay for it, literally, um, you know, one guy came in one night and we had um, a bottle of bourbon that had been made 10 years ago and we had a bottle of it that was open, and it was down to about last couple of ounces. So it had been open for a while because it wasn't an inexpensive whiskey. And then we had another bottle of it that hadn't been opened. And he said, let's, I'll buy the pours, let's compare the bottle that's been open probably for a couple of years with the bottle that we're just going to open. And the difference was night and day. Wow. And we both, both preferred the one that had been open longer. <laughs> so a great um, exercise I, well, yeah, well what a generous guest um, to, yeah. to, to buy that I mean I could have done that on my own with a little sip but you yeah. know he bought he bought significant pours for everyone so yeah.
0: when I visited Buffalo, Buffalo Thrace a couple of years ago they were showing me the barrels that literally will be drank at some point by the next generation and just the idea that this is being made for somebody, you know, by the owners, of course, and principals, but they can't afford to age it that long. And yes. really investigate what could be
1: to that degree. Yeah, well, that's th- that was a big um, plus that the distilleries that came out of prohibition solvent had, which was they were able to, I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, again, nothing, nothing earth shattering here. I mean, people were consuming whiskey steadily through prohibition for medicinal purposes, um, so much so that um, there were um, holidays. I'm doing air quotes. The, the federal government allowed some distilleries to operate for a day um, so they could make more whiskey because the on hand stocks were so depleted during the 13 years of prohibition. So towards the end there was a bunch of whiskey that was made and sold that was very very young i mean i mean a lot of the whiskey that was sold during prohibition was also very old because it had been made before prohibition and no one had ever meant to hang on to it for that long and then there was stuff that they made during prohibition that was like a year and a half two years old um and there's some interesting stories about that um unto itself but um those distilleries were able to basically they weren't able to flip a switch and start operating immediately, but they were in a position to do so. So they got a a big leg up over, you know, I mean, someone starting after prohibition. And really there weren't a lot of people starting right after. Um, And that gave them a big advantage um, and a disadvantage as well, because as I mentioned, everyone suffered tremendously um, in the 70s and 80s um, because of the, the, the way the market collapsed for age spirits um i mean a lot of a lot of really good whiskey got destroyed because it couldn't be kept mm. just plain and simple yeah. you No, know, and, and and uh you know the other thing is you know we coming back to your craft guys again you know initially everyone was expecting that craft whiskey was young it just needed more time of aging and it would be as good as the whiskey that people were buying from from their name brands in Kentucky. And that's when the realization about environmental conditions became much more apparent to everyone. Because I was starting to drink craft whiskey, very small production whiskey from um, the Pacific Northwest that was six years old. And it didn't taste like the equivalent of a six year old um, whiskey from from, uh, Indiana or Kentucky. Um, you know, just use those as benchmarks, and and we knew we knew eventually why it was because the whiskey wasn't aging at the same rate. Um, it, it just it wasn't getting exercised through the seasons. Um, so, Interesting.
0: well, there's so much more to unpack there, and I know we're gonna be doing a follow-up podcast because I have a million more questions. Um, but for the purposes of this one. Let's talk cocktails. Sure. Um, that's the fun part, right? You get to create something with all these beautiful whiskeys and um, some of them are classics. Some of them are riffs, some classics. Like give us an overview of what you have been working with behind the bar, maybe some of the favorites, some of the go-tos, some of the interesting bits and pieces of your career.
1: Well, so, I will I will say at Hog at 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 Hardwater, my boss, a fellow named Eric Adkins, um, mm-hmm. is really best known for his extreme um, adherence to to classic cocktail composition and recipes. And um so he is, you know. <laughs> I, I used to joke, to, and he knows this to his face, so I'm not gonna upset him if I say this. He was the Anton Scalia of cocktails. Um, if the recipe was written a certain way, then he believed that that was, you, you needed to not deviate from that very far, if at all. Otherwise it was a different cocktail. Um, and to his credit, you know, he was able to really show what you know, what these cocktails could and should taste like. And these are very simple cocktails. Um, and so, you know, Eric is the kind of guy where um, if we were gonna make a daiquiri, we would sit down, and we could make 10 small variations on a daiquiri to dial it in the way that we wanted it to be. And, you know, Eric, that was Eric's great um, gift in cocktails. And so you get a, a great appreciation for these classic drinks. and. And these, these, these drinks persevere because they're very satisfying and delicious. Um, a Negroni is a great drink because the three ingredients in it are, it's relatively easy to replicate, the, the, um, to make one. But with a little bit of tinkering, you can actually really show different facets of the drink in different lights. Um, and it's, a, it's a, a drink that has withstood the test of time. Um, and rightly so. So that's that's Eric's cocktail program. And at, so at working for him at um, Hardwater and for folks who work for him at Slanted Door would know those are the drinks that are going to be those are the names you're going to see on the um, uh, on the on the on the cocktail list. When I was working at and running the program at Hogan Rocks, um, that was the pinnacle that was really the culinary cocktail moment. And that was, you know, fresh ingredients, seasonal drinks, playing with flavors, um, taking tips from molecular um, gastronomy, um, working with essential oils, Um, there there was kind of we could do pretty much anything. Um, and, And I would say, some of those drinks were good because they were fanciful. And other of those drinks were kind of like, they were okay. They weren't anything to repeat, um, but they were very exciting. And and to a certain extent, you know, as as adjuncts to food, they really do stand up. I mean, there's there's a role for cocktail programs that are integrated with with the kitchen, and something I missed a lot at um, Hard Water was working as tightly with the kitchen as I did when I was at um, Hogan Rocks, and you know, and Scott. Scott Beatty, who was a mentor and still is in many ways, you know, that's a lot of how he started. One was working with local produce vendors in uh, Sonoma County, but also working with the kitchen um, at, uh, um, at um, yeah, <laughs> I'm blinking on it. Yeah. Oh my God. So many, so many bars have come and gone. But uh, yes, so um, I still think there's a role for all of those. Um, I'm not sure if I answered that question for you. Um, I, 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 I do want to say, and, and this is something that I would just maybe just put a third leg on the stool. You know, I just described two kind of branches, but I would also say that if you, there's a third piece here, which is we really discovered that regardless of what kind of drink you were making, the environment of consumption mattered increasingly. Sure. So, so, and and we also had to get a lot. <laughs> we had to get a lot better at making those drinks a lot faster. Um, you know, uh, at the beginning, uh, if I made a, a you know a, a five ingredient drink, two of which I had to be in the kitchen for two weeks early to make, um, you know, a tamarind. Um, you know something with tamarind, or I was um, cooking down, um, you know, pine needles or something. I don't know. I'm thinking of crazy stuff here, but um, I, I mean, I, I made a lot of, of, of different ingredients for the drinks. But but people would sit and focus on you making the drinks. People were really like they wanted to see the drink made right in front of them. They wanted to see the artistry. It was like going to a sushi bar. Yeah. You know. It, they they they, watching the guy make the the little bite you're gonna have, watching the the gal make your drink. All of that was part of that craft cocktail moment. Um, now people want drinks like that, but they don't want to wait. <laughs> so everyone had to get a lot clever about making the drinks faster. But we also realized you needed a really nice place to hang out. Um, mm-hmm the bar environment mattered increasingly more. Um, you know, uh, you needed space. People didn't wanna be crowded into a bar. Um, you needed to kind of cut some of the hoo-ha down um, and just, it'd be kind of a matter of course that, yeah, of course this place makes good drinks, but I came here to hang out with my friends and we brought a, we brought a cake with us and we're gonna do a birthday for them. And the drinks are just an adjunct, and it's a given that we can have good drinks here, so. That was the other part that changed. Um,
0: That's very cool. The social aspect is so important. Context always matters. If you feel good, everything's going to taste better, feel better. Um, yeah. Is there a favorite whiskey cocktail? If you were to pick one, which is never a fair question to begin with.
1: Is there any good? yeah. I mean, for for years, I was very much a Big fan of Manhattan and Manhattan variations. I mean, I'm not to say that I'm not, but um, I still think the synergy between um, a whiskey and um, a, a, an aperitif or vermouth, um, there's a lot to be done with that. Um, you know, I mean, in the summer, I want to drink Negronis, but in the winter, I'm going to drink Boulevardiers as an example. So I'm going to, you know, my, my, I'm going to take that brown spirit, and I'm going to put it into into the context of, um, you know, uh, something uh, either wine based or um, an infused, uh, like an aperitif or an Amari. Um, So I was always endlessly fascinated by all of that and still am. So those are still some of my favorite things to drink. Um, And over the years, I got to say, you've heard me mention daiquiris more than once. (laughs) You know, There's something magic about lime and sweetener and rum and ice and making the damn thing cold and frothy and putting that in front of either myself or a guest and um, Really hard to beat.
0: (laughs) I I know someone was telling me a story a while back that there was a critic um, That judged the quality of the bar um You know the bartender, really the the person in front of him, and certainly by and large the type of bar it was by ordering a daiquiri and
1: comparing it to what he tasted before. Is oh, that- I'm nodding. I'm nodding vigorously right now. Oh, yes,
0: that's awesome. So there's a lot of validity to that. Good to know. So when things open up, I'm just gonna start going around to bars and I find myself in one. That's the first drink I'm gonna order.
1: Well, and, and what's fun to do is don't just order a daiquiri. Engage the bartender and ask them to make their daiquiri. <laughs> ah.
0: This is starting you know,
1: down to sound a lot more fun. You know, Hardwater had one vodka. <laughs> we had about anywhere from four to six gins.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And at any given time, at least a dozen rums. That's
0: so interesting.
1: And the reason we had the rums is because we all loved making daiquiris. And the general, the general rule was, is if you were whatever, tell me what you want and I'll buy it for the bar for us. Now you can sell it of course, but these are, these are primarily for bartender drinks. Um, and you know, you just really see all these different um, expressions of people's personalities come out, um, in, in that one, three ingredient drink um so that's why it's a fun one to, but the caution is <laughs> what do you do when the drink comes and it's lackluster and it does happen
0: mm-hmm.
1: my advice is don't have another cocktail
0: got it so don't send it back which is don't order
1: another one yeah don't order. don't order you you've made your experiment now now pay attention to, to where you are and it with no fault just just you know that's, you're just not in the right place or, or, or with the right person. Someone else maybe would do something different.
0: Same so. advice. Don't give up on the cocktail just because you don't like somebody's version on it. Go try somewhere else. That's the same thing. I mean, if you keep striking out, I wouldn't blame you. But I
1: right. Yeah. But also, you know, um, there's a bartender up in um, Seattle. Well, he doesn't bartend anymore. A fellow named Andrew Borer. Um, I met him because of working on the cocktail book, coming back almost full circle now. And Andrew had a blog, and at some point he had these rules of drinking, rules of, of going out. And they were, they were, you know, some of them were snarky and some of them weren't. But he was, he was the one who always said, pay attention to where you are and don't order something that's not reasonably going to be executed for you. You know, if I go to an, if I go to a, an airport lounge when I'm traveling, you know, I, I, and they're making drinks off of a gun, you know, it's on me not to order something that's going to that I know they can't execute there. Yeah. So, you know, that's where I have my beer in a shot and I'm a happy guy. Um, nice. You know, um, and that happened, by the way, a lot with as as craft cocktails and fresh ingredients became a big thing. They there were a lot of places that undertook those and did them. I mean, I would go as far to say as you saw them on menus at TGIF and um, Olive Garden, and you know some of those large fast casual chains with liquor licenses were attempting to cash in on that and made some pretty horrible drinks. Um,
0: yeah, unfortunately. Once the trend starts, everyone tries to capitalize on it for the execution as a result suffers. So
1: On the other hand, you've got the Cheesecake Factory, <laughs> which has extensive cocktail programs. I mean, I don't know what they're gonna do now, but they also would have like five different fresh citrus juices huh. on the menu. And the people who worked at those bars, um, there it was a workout for them. Yeah. Um they had, they were held to pretty high standards for uh, a corporate entity and and the drinks were not, were not easy. And they were, you know, you might not like all of them, but they were, they were, you know, attempting to do high volume, interesting originals. And they did, they did put their money where their mouth was and they brought good ingredients in to do that. So, so
0: yeah. I'm not regretting that I've never had a cocktail at Cheesecake Factory and now I mean able too, but... I know. I would have thought of for cocktails. About oh, that? if you if you meet any
1: bartender you you meet who's worked at Cheesecake Factory, it's great to chat them up about the experience of working okay. there.
0: Gosh, where were you in my life? This is such good intel. <laughs> um, well, we now know that you drink cocktails. You told you told us earlier that you're really a wine lover, but by virtue of the choices that you made, professional life choices, you know. A stage um, of whiskey and cocktails, but I assume you still drink wine, right? Is there still a bedroom with air conditioning?
1: No, no, that's long gone. Um, wow. That that was the, the the last of that. I got tired of carrying all the wine around. Yeah. The, the collection dwindled, um, and I still had I had custom racks and stuff made for them, which were easy to assemble and uh i won't go into how crazy the whole thing went but i will tell you i sold off the last of it um to, well i sold it to to k and um and you know that they they paid top dollar for it wow okay. i mean i when i gave the guy the list um, i had the last inventory it was down to under 300 bottles at that point and i packed it up and drove it down to redwood city they have a uh, I had a warehouse where they, you, they buy collections mm-hmm. and uh, we moved it out into a holding pen. They had multiple of these holding pens mm-hmm. for private collection um, to, for someone to come in and evaluate it. And <laughs> five days later, I got um, the offer from them and I was shocked at what they were gonna pay me for it. And they took everything but maybe 12 bottles um, they passed on. And I mean, I understood why they passed on the bottles, but I was, I was like, okay. I mean, that was, but that was the end of it. Wine, I defer to other people um, now. Um, wine got really complicated. Um, I think, um, I actually am very, very interested in sherry. Um, and think sherry is a hugely, I mean, I think everyone's had, everyone in the bar industry has had their sherry cocktail moment at this point um but i became very very interested in the entire process um and it's this marvelously stable product that comes at the end of these soleras, um you know and they're very very affordable when you think about it you were talking about things that are old i mean you can buy 30 year old sherry or cherries from a solera where the end product is you know commingled and 30 years old for reasonably reasonable prices and they're delicious with food they make great pairings with food, um, so yeah, that's about it. Otherwise, I, I defer to someone else at the table. So,
0: I yeah. have another episode coming on when we're going to talk about specifically pairings with things like sherry's and oh
1: yeah
0: whiskey. I think there's a whole other separate episode, and we're going to get into the history more, and we're really going to talk about American whiskey versus. Scotch whiskey. Which
1: oh yeah, a lot of people would be very interested to learn about. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I, I like. I mean, my interest in spirits is broader than just American whiskey. I mean, that's what I, that's where I hang my hat up. But um, the, or that's the hat I hang on my head. That's a better yeah. way to say that. But um, oh no, I mean, so many interesting spirits out there. Um, and so many different ways that they're made the only thing you know the only spirit i don't like is i cannot drink by joe i just i can't do it um i think you have to grow up drinking that stuff yeah um, uh, you know i did um do you know what uh bar is b-a-r in new york <laughs> um bar is beverage It stands for beverage alcohol resources it's a it's a group of folks you might know who paul Packelt is He's a, um, yeah. a, okay. So Paul, this is Paul's project, oh, along sure. with Steve Olson and Doug Frost. and um, They teach a class. It's a, you have to apply for it. It's once a year. It's five and 10 days in New York City. Um, and it's, it's, it's an amazing experience. It's very expensive. Um, and it has almost zero bearing on your career. But It's a a great introduction to, for a lot of people, it's their first time to try a very wide variety of spirits and learn all about them. Um, But they do, one of the the sessions is on Baijiu and they poured six or seven of them. And there are all these different styles and grains. And by the time I think I got to the third one, (laughs) I I just, I, I didn't say it out loud, but I'm like, I'm not putting this in my mouth.
0: Well, it's good to know what you strongly dislike. Very
1: constructive. Oh,
0: Um, yeah. You know, considering how many spirits you've tasted in your lifetime, to just have one that doesn't appeal to you in any way, shape, or form, that's probably a victory right there. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for all the knowledge and insights. It's been a fascinating discussion, and I very much look forward to our next one.
1: Okay, well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about you know a lot of a lot of luck and opportunities that were presented to me and you know i I like to feel like i I ex- took advantage of each one and uh, I'm very grateful for the time that you and I just spent today to talk about you know what I kind of summating a lot of stuff I've been doing for the last ten years and to start thinking about what's gonna happen next so.
0: Absolutely. No, it's been such a pleasure chatting yeah. with you and this is very much to be continued.
1: Yeah, the only thing that's missing is we're not sitting together in the same room. And at this point, I would be breaking out something from one of my bottles here, which you can't see. Um, I don't have a very, ex- I, I, I will never own the spirits collection equivalent of what I have in wine at its peak. Um, it's just not going to happen, but there are some really nice things here. It'd be fun to pour a few of them for you and taste through them and give you that experience uh, that i used to give people at the bar and hopefully we'll do again
0: okay well i'll tell you what um i am in let's make the next recording in person yeah and hopefully yep. it won't be too long because like i said things are starting to open up so i am super excited to be with you in person it sounds like
1: and we'll yeah see. we could do that
0: yeah, we'll take some pictures for in some pasting notes for our listeners so they can also participate virtually to the treats that you have in mind. So, this is a very exciting proposition. Yep. I can't wait. Done. Okay. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palate Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.